Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. This is episode 43. I'm your symbiote, Randall Hayes. We've been on a cultural kick lately. It's time to get back to some biology. Next week is our yearly Beacon Congress, and soon after that, the giant international evolution meetings in Canada. I think five different societies are cooperating to put that on this year. I'd love to be a Drosophila on the wall for that, but after a month on the road already, there is no way. Maybe I can recruit some Beacon correspondents among the grad students and postdocs during the Congress. Speaking of international cooperation, this week's interview is mostly about the international problem of wildlife conservation, centered around the Darwin Research Center in the Galapagos Islands. The center is run by a consortium of international researchers. My guest this week, Eric Horstman, was just a kid, no older than some of my students, when he started working there. I was very fortunate because I went in 1988. At that time, there wasn't internet, so I had to uh, send a... Uh, a letter uh, with my um, resume, and it took like, I think, four or five months before it actually got out there and somebody read it. Because um, it was delivered by Penguin? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it, it actually was shipped out by boat. Um, you know, there was, there was there's, there's an airstrip uh, with daily air flights, but um, uh, anyway, it, it, it was sent the, the slow way to, to Galapagos. So... Uh, lo and behold, I, I got a re- reply back, um, inviting me to come out to work, uh, specifically in, uh, the environmental education department of the, uh, Charles Darwin Research Station, because there's all this wonderful, uh, investigation, uh, uh, real top-notch scientists that are coming through doing different kinds of things. But unfortunately, uh, the problem is, is that at least at the time, a lot of that information wasn't being um, uh, presented to the local population, especially uh, the implications of trying to conserve uh, a, a difficult ecosystem with no running water. Um, uh, they were literally for years having to depend on water that they would pump out of lava cracks because there's no streams, rivers in, in the Galapagos Islands. Now they have to uh, bring water out in, 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 in tanker ships. Um, so in, in a very hostile terrain because most of the islands, you know, it's, it's volcanic, uh, lava, rock formations. So no dirt. Yeah, no. Uh, well, in the uh, highland parts of four of the seven major islands that comprise the Galapagos Islands, there is, you know, soils, um, and there is some limited agriculture because also because of the altitude, um, they get a lot of um, garua, which is mist. Um, so they grow, you know, oranges and, and, and some other um, crops there. There's also some cattle raising. Um, so, you know, that was basically how people for a number of years uh, got by there. Now it's a lot easier because they can have things shipped out fairly easily by plane or by boat. So the researchers actually, in the in the past, like raised their own food there. Well, I you know probably not the researchers, but there was um, uh, 
you know, since Ecuador became independent in 1835, um, you know, there's been uh, populations coming out, and I say populations because there were different groups. One of the first groups different out... Different ethnic groups, you mean? No, uh, just social strata. The, the, the first, one of the first groups that came out was actually uh, convicts, uh, you know, that were uh, a rich uh, uh, Ecuadorian man, Manuel Cobos, who was a uh, uh, very uh, cruel uh, uh, plantation owner. Uh, he had a, well, not a plantation, but he had a farm uh, up in the higher part of one of the islands. Um, had made a deal and brought out convict labor um, to, uh, you know, build buildings out of uh, lava rock and things like that. And uh, it's it's really uh, graphic because there's a, a, a place called the Wild Tears, which is a, a volcanic rock wall that was constructed by the convicts because a lot of them died just because the conditions were so harsh. So there was also, um, you know, other people coming out. Um, at that time, it was mainly, uh, like I said, uh, people that were kind of on their, uh, the dregs, uh, the dregs of society, spoke, so to speak, from Ecuador, that uh, were, were forced to come out, um, convicts and others. Uh, there was also a little bit of a, a, a slave not so much a trade, but there were people, indentured servants, I guess is the word, that, that were there. So was that in place when Darwin was, came by on yeah. Beagle? Yeah, it was. Did he, did he, because in other places in South America, he was very, very critical of the slave trade. Yeah. Something that people don't, you know, necessarily know about him yeah. and his family. Yeah. But, uh, so this was in place, so he, when he came to the Galapagos, it was basically a, a penal colony slash slave plantation? Well, indentured kind of? servants, you know. I mean, there, there weren't so much. It wasn't like the sugar cane, sugar cane plantations that he had seen in, in coastal Brazil um, and some other places. But they were, you know, people that, for whatever reason, were, were you know, like I said, either convicts or, or people that had uh, were servants of, of these uh, uh well-to-do people that were brought out there and, 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 and basically forced to work as slaves. So, you know, from that, um, you know, the, 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 the tourist trade didn't really get going in the Galapagos until uh, around 1970. And that had to do with the, um, the revamping of a uh, Air Force base on Baltra Island, which is actually... Um, was used by the U.S. military during World War II um, in agreement with, with Ecuador to protect the Panama Canal from uh, the Japanese. And I, uh, on one opportunity, I um, had the, uh, I went up into the highlands of an uh, island and found a, a crashed World War II uh, bomber uh, with you know, the remains of the, of the people still there. That was really kind of a, uh, uh, it's kind of a stark haunting experience. So this place, this place really is, it's kind of haunted in it's, a sense by a lot of history yeah. that is totally unknown to people who are not there. Yeah, I mean, it was called uh, Las Islas Encantadas, Enchanted Islands, um, 
for a number of reasons. Well, one of them was that um, uh, the, the ocean currents uh, around the Galapagos Islands are really treacherous. And actually, and there's a lot of conjecture around this, but the person that uh, supposedly discovered the Galapagos was a Spanish uh, a priest, uh, Tomas de Berlanga, Berlanga, who in like 1536 was en route from Lima, Peru to um, Panama and was blown off course and then currents took him out to the Galapagos. Um, you know, and his descriptions match what the islands were like, describing the black lava rock and these strange, you know, dragons, which I think he was referring to, um, the marine iguanas, which looked very prehistoric, uh, looking with black and with a, a crest down their back and long tails. Um, but there's uh, also conjecture that perhaps um, uh, others... Uh, came out before uh, because they found um, archaeological, you know, just not significant digs, but like artifacts that uh, indicate that perhaps a seafaring society uh, may have made it out there. And and I have to say that um, in coastal Ecuador, um, this first Spanish uh, uh, explorers, uh, many miles out to sea, encountered balsa wood rafts. Um, and that was one of the reasons why Thor Heyerdahl did the Contiki voyage, uh, was to prove that these rafts could go from the coast of South America out as far as Tahiti. Um, so it's, it's within the realm of possibility that they could have gotten out to the Galapagos. I probably, because of the lack of resources that would interest them, they, they were, probably just going through. I don't think there was, you know, there's no indications that there was like colonies or people, you know, living out there before it was discovered. And there was also, um, during the 1800s, American whaling vessels that would come out because um, the offshore waters of the Galapagos has uh, still, uh, fortunately, a large uh, sperm whale. Uh, colony, so they were a group that were coming out to hunt the sperm whales, and um, they were, you know, um, themselves, along with the settlers that were coming out, you know, kind of set the stage for one of the big conservation issues that confronts Galapagos, and that's introduced species, because, you know, island ecosystems... Um, evolved in isolation, the, the, the plants and animals. So the predators, the competitors that they may have had on the mainland when, um, you know, their ancestors lived there uh, are no longer present and, and oftentimes in, in a island, uh, islands like the Galapagos. So you have situations where, for example, the animals have no fear of, of humans. Um, that has changed over the years in the settled parts of the islands where animals have repeatedly had contact with humans and they have developed a fear of them and not only humans but also dogs, cats, pigs, goats, burros and all the uh, uh, animals uh, and introduced plants that were brought out there. And so, so back up a second. Uh, what do you mean by having no fear. I mean, can you just describe what, what the experience of that would be like to just to be on the island with what the, the animals don't leave when you're a human? 
Yeah, I well, I had an experience. I was very fortunate because I was able to uh, hike to the with a group of guides to the uh, crater in the center of Fernandina Island, which is um, one of the, the probably the most uh, volcanically active island uh, in in the Galapagos. Um, Two months after I was there, uh, the caldera that we were collapsed a thousand feet. Um, and, so, and there's been uh, frequent uh, uh, lava eruptions coming out. But uh, anyway, um, very few people get out there. It's um, it's part of the Galapagos National Park, which was basically drawn around uh, the existing settlements on four islands. So about 97% of the Galapagos is actually protected as national park, and 3% is where the humans live uh, on some coastal parts and then the highland parts of, of, of four islands. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, we, we, we were uh, hiked up to this caldera. We were camped out. We had no tents. We just had tarps to get out from under the the, the sun, which is really strong on the equator, which goes right through um, Galapagos and, and Ecuador, the mainland part. Um, but and high up, how high? Uh, this was about um, about 900 feet above sea level. So it was a pretty high um, uh, part, uh, or, or caldera area. But as we're, you know, lying out there uh, under the tarps, during the hot sun, we would have uh, mockingbirds uh, come out, and they would literally come up to us, and they would like pluck out our hair because they were building nests. Um, we had um, land iguanas that were um, nesting around us, and they would just, you know, uh, walk right through our camp and uh, or just sit there and watch us. Uh, as we came up to them, you know, we didn't uh, disturb them or anything. So um, we had a, a, a Galapagos hawk, which um, followed us uh, basically a, a large part of the hike from the coast up to the mainland, and it was just fascinating by us. I mean, it would, you know, there was no trees. It was just barren lava rock, and, and you know, it's like, Dante's Inferno, and Inferno, and out, you know, in the middle of this is this hawk that would fly up ahead, perch on a rock, uh, lava rock, and watch us as we walk by, and then go back up ahead and just do the same thing. And so that was magical, because, you know, where in the world these days could you find that innocence, you know, in, 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 in animals that uh, are not afraid of people? Wow. So... So some of the other weird things that happen uh, on islands is um, lots of birds lose the ability to fly yeah. on islands. Is that a common thing in the Galapagos? Well, there's one famous example of the flightless cormorant, um, you know, which uh, cormorants are strong flyers normally. Um, it's a tropical uh, species that's normally found, uh, uh, in, you know, along the coast and along rivers and and mangrove areas, but uh, they're they're flying fish eaters exactly. They, unlike penguins, which are you know just swimming fish yeah, eaters. Yeah, but in the Galapagos, um, you know, and, and was conjecture about how some of the species got out there. But um, 
you know, they, they, being birds, or might have been blown off course during a storm or something like that. But they lost their ability to fly. They are totally flightless, uh, incredibly vulnerable because obviously on on islands where there have been you know cats or dogs introduced, they are no longer there. But uh, I had the opportunity on the same Fernandina Island uh, to to see them nesting there next to Galapagos penguins. And that was really surreal because we always associate penguins with, you know, cold ice flows and, and, and whatnot. But uh, there is a species of penguin out there in, in the Galapagos that uh, uh, is, is amazing to see uh, up, you know, swimming around and then getting up on the lava rocks. So there's just... And, uh, um, um, you know... Many uh, species, you know, it's, it's 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 amazing to see how from one, you know, or, or obviously a pair to be able to reproduce and, and start the process of of, of uh, you know tortoises, of, of finches, of other species that uh, are you know their cousins are found on the mainland now, got out there and just through you know adaptive radiation expanded out. Uh, in the case of the Darwin's finch, which is a really famous example in which Darwin himself, Charles Darwin, observed when he was out there, and probably was one of, you know, several things that he saw on his voyage of discovery with the Beagle um, through South America, led him on the path to uh, develop the theory of evolution. But uh, from one parent species, uh, which was apparently a small seed eater, now they have uh, all these different species that fill niches of, of bird species that uh, are found on the mainland but not out there. So, example, there's a finch that um, uh, only lives in mangroves. It's called the mangrove finch. It's actually an endangered species because there's very little pockets of mangroves out there. The, the lava rocks don't allow for mangroves to, to develop fully like they do in, in coastal Ecuador. Um, but there are some patches. Um, there's another one, which is the woodpecker finch, which obviously, as the name indicates, has kind of filled the niche of a woodpecker. Even though there are no trees? That, well, there's, there's small trees and, and bushes, and, and, uh, but mainly bushes. And, and this is actually, the species has been documented as a tool user, because what they'll do is they'll go and, and find a spine from a, a tree, and use that to fish out grubs from holes in the branches of, of bushes out there. And it's amazing. Uh, there's another finch that have, they call it, it's the vampire finch, because on, on one island, uh, which is a small island in the uh, northern part of the archipelago, that very few people get out to Wolf Island, um, only basically scientists, um, as a means of supplementing the obvious uh, protein deficiency that they suffer with, um, they'll go and find nesting boobies, which is a big uh, seaver, and they'll come up to them and peck at the base of the feathers until they draw blood, and they'll, they'll lap up the blood. And, uh, <laughs> you know, how, how that, you know, one bird suddenly decided to do that and it evolved into it's it's not a, a a separate species in that case but it is uh, uh, obviously behavior that has been transmitted through several generations of these finches but it's just amazing so so genetically 
there's not too much difference between the vampire finches and... Yeah, they're basically a small, uh, I think they're, they're called uh, a small small ground finch or something like that. Common on, on, on the other islands, and they're seed eaters, you know, and how they develop that habit there on that one island is beyond us. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm personally a proponent that most of our technological advances are kind of accidents. Yeah. And so, may, you know, who knows how that first bird did. Sure. But uh, animals are not, you know, they, they do experiments too. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that's really fascinating. So then you, you mentioned that the people on the islands did not sort of get the benefit of all this scientific research because it was kind of locked up in English language journals. Yes, exactly. So that was your job was to sort of break down that barrier? Yeah, because um, you 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 weren't serving tourists, in other words. To a certain extent, what I would do is that um, uh, the Darwin Station, uh, which is located on Santa Cruz Island in a town called Port Ayora, it's kind of out of on the outskirts of the town. Um, the 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 station was was founded by an international consortium of scientists back in the early sixties. Um, they actually started building the infrastructure out there, I think, in 1963. Um, and the first park warden to come out to the Galapagos National Park, which uh, initially used the facilities of the research station as kind of their base, uh, was in 1968. Um, so, you know, and, and Ecuadorian history, actually, it goes back quite a ways because most conservation initiatives didn't begin in that country on the mainland until the 70s and the 80s. But anyway... Um, but so, so most of those scientists who were there were not Spanish-speaking Ecuadorian no, scientists. No. They were English and French, German speakers. Yeah, and that, that was part of the pro- problem, if you will, because, you know, there was a lot of, you know, international interest and, and support you know, they they had some some benefactors from, you know, the, the United Kingdom, from France, uh, from the United States, from some, some several other countries. But it was this thing where, you know, they were doing this this very important research, but unfortunately, taking a lot of the information back. When the Darwin Station was was created, um, you know, that kind of changed because then they started, you know. They built a library. They had uh, facilities on site, and um, which I think is a really positive thing that they uh, instituted a requirement that all foreign researchers had to have Ecuadorian colleagues. You know, whether they're scientists or students, that would be with them, um, so that the Ecuadorians would have the opportunity to. Um, you know, learn from them, and it has been a very rich, you know, uh, uh, process. Um, several Ecuadorian, you know, university students at the time that were working with uh, people like Peter Grant, who's uh, a British fellow that has been doing a, a long-term, continual study of the Darwin finches on one island, uh, Daphne Island, for over thirty years and has had several uh, students coming through, and he's actually looking at the process of evolution continuing with that particular, I think there's four species of finches on that one island, and he can see, and during a 30-year span of time, how 
evolution is manifesting through the changes in the beaks to adapt to uh, feeding on different uh, uh, plant species, responding to you know pressures like when the El Nino phenomena has happened in the Galapagos. It's actually pretty negative out there because um, the, the offshore uh, water currents change. It becomes cold water. The warm water fish move out. A lot of seabirds um, fail at nesting because they don't have a food source because the fish aren't there. The vegetation on a lot of islands just goes uh, uh, bonkers with all the rain, which is normally not the case there. It's it's pretty almost... So the plant community of food just shifts exactly. completely in a very short period of time? Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, um, there's a book that chronicles what, what Grant's research is called The Eye of the Finch, and so I highly recommend it because it goes into that whole process of how, for example, with these manifestations of things like El Nino and the changing of the vegetation, it's obviously affected also the food source for these finches. And so some finches with, you know, for example, uh, large like, you know, uh, hard seed cracking bills uh, are become obsolete because the plants change and that kind of seed is no longer available. What's the generation time on a, on a finch? Do they, they have a, how many broods do they normally have in a year? I, one, maybe two if the, the conditions are right. So, I mean, within five or ten years is, is you know, they can see generational Changes and and so um, you know when I went out there in, in 1988, um, I lived um, at in a student compound at the Charles Darwin Station, and there's you know um, uh, laboratories, um, you know there's all kinds of different research going on. You've got marine biologists, you've got uh, you know terrestrial ecologists, you've got uh, herpetologists that are studying the giant. Uh, tortoises or the land or the marine iguanas. Uh, we've got now entomologists because one of the issues now is that, you know, big introduced species like dogs, cats, goats are, are not coming out now. It's the small things that come in through cargo shipments from the mainland. Ants, you know, fire ants have been introduced down there. Uh, you know, tarantulas in the bananas. Exactly. In yeah. the food shipments. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, they've started fumigating um, recently in the, within the last five years, and they actually have been able to control some of that. But before that, it was just open season. Anything could come out and, you know, shipping from the mainland and, and no sanitary controls at all. So that's the consequences of it. Um, and so there is a part of it where, you know, the tourists come and visit the, the Darwin Station. They do depend on you know, some tourist support. Um, and part of what I would do was to uh, give a talk to um, some of the tour groups focusing on the conservation of, of that because, um, you know, Galapagos, although some people would want to maybe build a club mid there or something like that, um, really they've tried to keep it, you know, close to, um, you know, uh, ecotourism in the true sense. I mean, people... A really early example of ecotourism? Yeah, exactly, because it was a, uh, 
started basically in the early 70s. There was one touring company, which still exists, that kind of pioneered the tours out there. Uh, one of the big uh, issues is carrying capacity, you know, because when I was out there in, in 1988, 89, um, they had set a limit of uh, 50,000 visitors a year. Um, before that, it was 25, and now it's it's over 200,000 visitors. 200,000 people go to the Galapagos yeah. every year? Yeah, well, that's the, the upper limit that they've imposed. You know, it's, it's always... Uh, kind of uh, uh, fluctuates according to the international trends. But th that's the problem because um, they're, you know, they, the, 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 as I said, 97% of the islands is national park. So um, outside of the uh, inhabited areas on four islands, you basically can only go to um, designated visitor sites. So they actually have trails and and not necessarily trails because if it's through lava rock you can't construct a trail but they'll put posts out there that kind of guide you where you have to go and you're not supposed to go off the path because oftentimes you're going through you know sea lion colonies if it's down on the coast or or seabird colonies boobies and other species uh, so it's try to minimize the impact and you always have to go with a guide and um they are most of the people who come and visit the Galapagos actually stay on board ships, um, and then the ships go around to different visitor sites on the islands. The problem is, is that um, that as the way I see it, is not so much with the international visitors, which is pretty carefully regulated, it's with the Ecuadorian visitors, and that's where the numbers you know, uh, increase because there's really no control on Ecuadorians going out there. It's, it's obviously a political issue. You know, they own it, you know. Sovereignty. Yeah, but, you know, the problem is, is that a lot of people have been attracted to, you know, within the last 20 years or so, to the potential of working in a tourist trade out there. And so the people from the mainland, um, who have absolutely no identity with the Galapagos Islands, um, you know, it's not like they live there and, and kind of understand how it is to live out there. And so that was part of what the work that I was trying to do was to work with those people, the the, the settlers, if you will, the modern day settlers out there. Um, and it, it's uh, you know the Portaiora, the town that uh, next to the Darwin Station at that time had just like this boom town uh, feel to it because there was constantly building and constructing going on and it's changed dramatically since then. Um, so uh, the pressures have been exerted on the national park, especially in the areas adjacent to the, 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 the built-up areas. To so, so squatters and people trying to move into the park and things like that? Well, what they've done is, is kind of as a pressure valve to... Um, decrease the pressure as they've allowed some resource extraction from the park, and that is really limited. Um, but it's basically rock, sand, gravel for construction material, because uh, obviously to bring it out from the mainland it's going to be really costly, and also to a certain extent wood. Um, there are some, a few, you know, tree species out there, not many, that can be harvested and used for wood. Um, so that has been an issue. Um, 
But one of the things that has, has, I think, worked to the benefit of Galapagos is the fact that, you know, it is a World Heritage Site, um, and it was put on the, uh, the blacklist, so you, so to speak, of, uh, heritage sites that were in danger throughout the world. Um, and it's, you know, kind of a symbolic thing. There's not any kind of like a, you know, nobody's going to come and find them or something like that because they're on the list, but it's just kind of to shame, you know, governments because obviously they don't want to. And the Ecuadorian government reacted pretty strongly to that in a positive way. You know, instead of trying to deny it, they said, okay, yes, there is a problem out here, and this is how we're going to deal with it. Um, and, and one of the big issues right now is is um, fishing because you have an incredibly, you know, uh, uh, rich uh, marine resource that is actually protected in a marine reserve, which is formed in a triangle that takes in from the very northern part of the Galapagos, the Wolf Island, where the where the, the, the vampire finches are, down to uh, uh, Española, Fernandina, the further southern islands. Um, unfortunately, you know, the Ecuadorian um, Navy doesn't have the capacity to effectively patrol the whole area, because what you have is this kind of uh, uh, noxious mix, if you will, of uh, illegal fishing boats, a lot of them are Costa Rican. Uh, you know, Costa Rica has got quite a reputation for being, uh, you know, kind of an ecological paradise. But in terms of fishing um, and, and questions of that sort, uh, uh, they are really uh, lagging behind significantly. Oh, well that, and that's classic game theory, too, that we've, we've actually talked about during the retreat a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be good in my neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, I talked a few weeks ago with uh, with a, a Japanese historian, mm-hmm. not a Japanese historian, a, a historian of Japan, mm-hmm. um, who talked about and they mentioned here during the retreat that you know you can't cut forests in Japan, yeah. but those are my forests. Yeah. I can cut other people's forests all I want. Yeah, and, and so that it sounds like the Costa Ricans are. You know, are they, are they are they better fishermen at home than they are in the Galapagos? I mean, in terms of being responsible. There's also an issue because uh, Costa Rica has um, what they call the equivalent of Galapagos. It's the Cocos Cocos Islands, which are off the, uh, off, the off the coast, and it's not at the level of of of, of um, you know evolution biological diversity as in the Galapagos. But there are several unique species. Um, I, I recently saw a documentary, and actually, um, Paul Watson from the Sea Shepherd Society, who has uh, donated a boat to the Galapagos uh, a Park Service to help out in uh, marine patrols, is, is actually uh, facing a possible extra, extradition to Costa Rica because um, a lot of, in, and both in Costa Rica and Ecuador, uh, there's this whole mafia, uh, if you will, around the issue of shark finning. It is a big issue. And not only shark finning, but also in the case of Galapagos, sea cucumbers. It was uh, incredible because, you know, locally, nobody even probably would recognize a sea cucumber, you know. I mean, it's this marine creature down in the bottom of the, you know, fairly shallow waters where they're found, which is kind of a, moves along and, you know, sucks in seawater and, and takes out nutrients and spits it out. 
So it's a filter yeah, feeder. It's a filter feeder, but related to starfish, right? Exactly. But the the issue is that in China, in the Orient, it's a delicacy. They dry them and they add them to soup. The same thing with shark fins. The, the famous shark fin soup, which is increasingly as Chinese become more wealthy, is a status symbol. It used to be very rare to be able to have you know have enough money to have that. Now it's very common, and so as a result, you know they're extending their 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 reach out to find stocks of of of, of these species. And what they found is actually, um, you know, uh, several of the marine species, including sharks, including sea turtles. You can't say that they're Ecuadorian. You can't say that they're Galapagos because they're actually migrating. And there's also some islands, you know, in between the, the Cocos Islands and Costa Rica and Ecuador. And uh, one of the things that they've recently done is to create a marine corridor in name still, but they're starting to coordinate between Ecuador, Colombia, um, uh, Panama, Costa Rica to try and protect a series of islands that are kind of like stop-off points for terrestrial species, birds, and in the case of marine species, protect the offshore waters. So this is this is not you know a huge inter- international ban like the whaling treaties. It's it's a local thing just between three countries. Yeah, and unfortunately, in in the case of Ecuador, um, and and bowing to political um, uh, pressure, the president of Ecuador, the current president. Um, uh, eliminated a uh, shark fin ban and said that they would allow incidental catch. Now, how in the world do you define incidental? You know, I mean, it, uh, they can't have observers out there on every boat. I caught this shark accidentally. Yeah. I wasn't fishing for it. It just hopped into my boat. Exactly. Yeah, that's the problem. And um, uh, the other element of it that is, is adding you know, actually danger to the people who are the park service people in large part who are patrolling out there is that um, uh, because of the shifting of the uh, drug trafficking trade, um, because uh, Colombia has gotten good at now um, eliminating uh, coca plantations that is used to make cocaine, um, the U.S. has been involved pretty heavily with that, um, spraying the plantations with herbicides like they've done with marijuana uh, here in the States. And another uh, 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 intersection of, you know, uh, of boats and, and planes going up with this uh, towards the north. Um, uh, the U.S. had a, uh, an agreement with Ecuador that uh, ended about two years ago to use an Ecuadorian military base to do drug interdiction flights. They had AWAC planes that would fly and pick up. Um, um. So now what they found is that since the government, the current government, uh, uh, refused to uh, extend the, the, the agreement with the United States, that now what they're doing is they're using Ecuador not just as a transit point, but they're actually starting to produce it out there. Um, they're starting to find, you know, marijuana, um, opium, poppy, uh, cocaine, you know, coca uh, fields to a certain extent, but they're also bringing some up from Peru, and then they load it up, the, the drugs up in uh, high uh, 
high-powered speedboats that go from the coast out to the Galapagos Islands. And they've got a mothership that's waiting off in the Galapagos Islands that then takes it up north. And usually what they do is they'll uh, make a... Uh, they'll either go to Guatemala or they'll go to Mexico, you know, uh, unload it, and then, uh, you know, through through mules, and I'm talking about human mules, um, usually transport it across the border into the United States. And so anytime you get sort of an influx of dirty money, there's people who will start doing not just one criminal activity, but lots of different criminal activities yeah. now. Yeah. It has a sort of a general corrosive effect. Yeah, exactly. The success story that you were telling sort of earlier about the Galapagos being kind of almost a model system for how to run uh, a park with lot with sensitivity to lots of different issues is, is kind of in danger now? Yeah, to a certain extent. Because of the both the fishing issue, not so much the... Drugs. I think that's beyond the scope of you know the uh, or, or doesn't affect directly the conservation efforts out there. It does to a certain extent with the question of security because obviously if you've got you know uh, Ecuadorian Navy boats that are out there, they're going to be focused on trying to uh, find those drug boats rather than trying to control fishermen. That's where the negative part of that comes. But the fishing pressure. Um, is you know uh, led to, for example, a really unstable situation with directors of the Galapagos National Park, including a woman who worked with me previously. You know, in, in in five years' time, they went through nine directors, and that is just not good. You know, because um, you need to have some stability in the organization, obviously. Um, and it was basically because. Um, you know, somebody would uh, uh, voice an opinion against, for example, with the question of sea cucumbers. Um, you know, all of a sudden, this this huge uh, uh, boom in, in 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 collecting sea cucumbers uh, started happening. So, what you would have were fishermen that would normally be out, you know, fishing for fish. Uh, suddenly uh, set up campsites uh, in remote areas of the national park along the coast, including Fernandina Island, which is uh, where I had visited and was the most pristine with uh, uh, few doc documented introduced species, uh, and set up these camps and then basically, um, you know, by very rudimentary kind of diving apparatus, go out and collect the sea cucumbers and then right there at their camps dry them out um, and then ship them. Um, and, you know, there was things like they would find, they found a, a senator of the National Congress that on the top of their house on the roof was drying, you know, pounds of uh, sea cucumbers and things like that because it came became really lucrative all of a sudden. So, you know, the, the, the government at the time, and we're talking about four or five years ago, despite a scientific study that showed that this particular you know, uh, animal, the sea cucumber, was fairly limited in numbers, and they actually came up with an estimate of how, how many, what the population was, which I think was, um, you know, maybe on, around certain islands, uh, uh, you know, 400,000 or something like that, like maximum, 
um, the Galapagos National uh, Park Service, under pressure from the Ecuadorian government, came out with a quota of a million sea cucumbers, which, you know, nobody met that quota because it was way beyond what the actual population was. That, you know, was in the recent past, and that is just an example of some of the, the, the political pressures that happens. And that, again, is where international pressure can come to bear and kind of, you know, I don't want to say the word, but it's really what happens. They kind of shame the government, which is what happened then. And they said, listen, you know, you guys need to get yourself, you know, together. Or, you know, like I said, they'll put you on the blacklist of the World Heritage Sites or something like that. And that's bad for tourism, you know, because the word gets out that they're not protecting the islands. And tourism is going to um, dry up. And for each, you know, international tourist, they charge from the get-go, $120 entrance fee to the National Park. So that alone is a fairly significant uh, amount of money that's coming into the coffers of the institution, which fortunately, um, through legislation that was passed about four years ago, most of it is staying within the Galapagos Islands. It used to be sent to a bank account on the mainland, and then who knows where that money is being spent. But that's changed. So it's in a sense, it's it's another kind of evolution. This constant legal back and forth manipulation is is really just a different level of the same thing as the constant catch up to the weather conditions and El Nino and the shifting food supplies. It, it's really another expression of the same dynamic. Then, Whew. that's only half the interview. Talking to Eric is like cracking open an encyclopedia for some light reading. Which, to be truthful, I used to do when I was a kid, when I ran out of other stuff to read. Much of our discussion during that Lama Foundation workshop-slash-retreat concerned the alienating effects of modern digital technologies. But those same issues have been around with books for hundreds of years. Thanks to my own compulsive reading behaviors, I knew a lot more about exotic animals thousands of miles away than I did about the ones roaming my parents' farm. I was definitely not grounded in the present moment at that time. Still, those same books provided some insulation from the attitudes of the farm folks around me, who only cared about those species that had some obvious practical use. Everything else was a pest or a weed. What we call ecosystem services today, things like erosion control and water filtration, which today are considered to be worth trillions of dollars, were completely ignored by that farming community. I learned about those things through secret, under-the-radar conversations with books, which broadened my mind beyond their immediate human concerns. My son has not grown up on a farm out in nature every day. He's spent more time on his Nintendo DS than he has out in the woods. And yet, he swears he can name over 600 Pokemon. He honestly loves those unreal little animals. Some people would consider that a sickness, but to me, the love is more important than the reality. I consider it a practice, an emotional stepping stone to the more difficult real world 
of poison ivy and biting insects. We're taking on that world this weekend with our first father-son camping trip at a state park here in Kentucky, if the weather allows. Wish us luck. Next week, I'll be in Michigan dodging mosquitoes, blogging and twittering from the Beacon Congress and from the Artificial Life Conference, ALIFE 13. Hopefully, I'll collect some good interviews there as well. I won't post any of them yet, but I will link to another interview that Eric Horstman did about a specific conservation project in Ecuador, trying to save the great green macaw. Yes, he has more to say. Keep an ear out for that one. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. You can subscribe to VSI for free through the iTunes store or with one click at our website, variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com. In between episodes, you can check out the blog on the web at that very same website. Please like us on Facebook at vsi.beaconpodcast or follow us on Twitter at vsibeacon. Thanks for listening.